Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the first Chillin' at the State House of 2023. I am Andrew Ball, one half of the Topeka Capital Journal's <laughs> State House Bureau. And I am joined, as always, by my compadre, Jason Tidd. Jason, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, happy it, New Year, everyone. And that uh, that is John Hanna, the Associated <laughs> Press, the uh, the friend of the podcast. The F- FOP. <laughs> Who's got a bit of a frog in his throat today? Well, that's not good. Or that, allergies. That, that, that will require surgery immediately, I would think, if there's a frog in oh, your throat. Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> it's crawling out, it's bouncing along. Everyone, We're getting Kafka esque now. <laughs> did everyone have a good holiday? We did. I did. I did. Uh, I just wish K State had one. But otherwise, it was a great holiday. <laughs> we'll overlook that fact. And we'll just focus on the fact that you were in New Orleans, which is yes. pretty cool. New Orleans was, is a great town. Uh, land of the uh, Princess and the Frog Disney adaptation. Maybe that's... Of maybe, course. Maybe, maybe I brought the frog of back for there, your throat. Of course there would be a Disney reference with Jason. <laughs> that's that's cool. No, I, uh, I was thinking uh, uh, Bourbon Street and uh, street musicians and... Beignets? Did you beignets. We had several beignets. Uh, At the Café du Monde? Yes. We oh, we yes. went there, and then there, and there was a other place called Hot Benny's near our hotel. Oh, uh, that's cool. A closer walking distance. I slightly preferred the Hot Benny's beignets, but the Café du Monde had Café a lot. Is that how you pronounce it? Café au Café au lait. And uh, that was very on point. It uh, it was the right mix of coffee and milk to where I did not need any sweetener. So I was in New Orleans for the sugar bowl with all this powdered sugar <laughs> falling off my beignets, and I did not need any sugar in my coffee. Well, that's, that's good. Well, so we are two days into 2023, but we are going to take a second and look back at the year that was. Uh, we all wrote a lot of stories in 2022. Covered a lot of things. Uh, pretty interesting year, I think. Like objectively, one of yeah. the more interesting years in recent memory. Um, so what we what we all did, and you all can play this game at home, is uh, we made a t- each of us made a top five list of the top five stories in 2022, and um, there was some slight variation, which is good because you know we don't want this to be boring. Uh, but there was a big three, so to speak, yes. that we all agreed on. Um, and I feel like we probably all agree on the, the biggest story of the year. Uh, Jason, why don't you kick us off? What What is the first of the big three, the big reveal? August 2nd, 2022. Uh, 
four months ago or five months ago to oh, this God. date. <laughs> uh, we had voters go to the polls and resoundingly rejected the so-called value them both amendment. Uh, if you recall, or if you are not from Kansas and did not see the national news. Or international made, news. <laughs> uh, if you were hiding under a rock for several months. The value them both amendment uh, was a proposed constitutional amendment to the state constitution that would have allowed the Republican supermajority legislature to regulate abortion. They did not further define what regulate meant, so some people... Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, interpreted that to mean that there could be a ban on abortion. Well, and and in fact, the text of the amendment left left the legislature would have had it been added to the Constitution would have allowed the legislature to ban it. The text, the actual text, said this Constitution does not grant a right to abortion or public funding of abortion, obviously as well, and. That it was an attempt to overturn the uh, 2019 uh, Kansas Supreme Court decision that said uh, access to abortion is a fundamental right under the Bill of Rights in the state constitution. And this was a, of course, a big issue before the summer and before the spring. But Andrew, how did the U.S. Supreme Court make this? Yeah, the the Dobbs decision in late. June? Yeah. The the months really blurred together for a I while think June there. June 24th. Yeah, the very it, end. Yeah, the Dobbs decision is interesting because of course in May it was leaked. Right. Or and the 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 most of the uh, most or all of the majority opinion was leaked. We kind of got this build up of um public outcry, derision, or support for the decision kind of in the run up. I got to say one of the most hotly anticipated U.S. Supreme Court rulings in the last several decades, I have to imagine, um, came out. The U.S. Supreme Court did what the leaked uh, ruling effectively said. Yeah, they it was were going almost word for word the same, if I'm recalling. Reading. Yeah, um, and overturned Roe v. Wade, which uh, provided for a national uh, right to an abortion. Trigger bans in many states, including Missouri, our neighbors to the east, immediately went into effect banning abortion. And the stakes, which were already quite high for the August 2nd Amendment vote, just went to astronomical heights. I mean, Kansas was at the center now of this national debate over abortion in ways that I think we maybe expected a little bit before the, the, the you know, we knew for sure what the Dobbs ruling was going to be. But, uh, you know, it was it, it was pretty amazing seeing the, the coverage of the, the vote on international news yeah yeah august 2nd would have been a national news story regardless of how it turned out but because of the extra uh national attention on abortion access following the dobbs decision it was the kind of thing where national news outlets were sending reporters to kansas generally not very far outside johnson county but they were sending (laughs) reporters to kansas in the lead up to this vote too well, and I think the decisive result made even more headlines because it set the stage for the midterms as well. And in, in this, you know, it was almost a 60-40 vote to reject the amendment, really defying, I think, what national 
pundits, national people who live on the coasts, think about uh, Kansas. Well, and, it, and the marching did surprise people here. Some yeah, some people here, absolutely. And what is interesting about that vote, and and it started. Um, uh, what followed in its wake in other states were a series of votes affirming abortion rights in four or five states, uh, Vermont, Michigan, Kentucky. Um, I'm forgetting it. There was a California one I, in there. There was one in California. Uh, Montana. Montana rejected an anti-abortion law. And so what, what you saw was a sense that even, uh, I mean, Kansas has always been viewed as socially conservative, Kentucky probably more so. In both of those states, they re- the voters rejected the same kind of constitutional amendment. So that really, really raised some questions about what some of the underlying political assumptions that have been around in Kansas politics for decades, how valid they were. Um, it, it raised the que- this, you know, the, the talking points of the Republican Party and the anti-abortion movement here have always been, you know, this is an anti-abortion state, pro-life state, you know, voters are pro-life, 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 and we want to be as, there was a sense that, um, you know, that if you wanted to further restrict abortion, people were with you. And what the vote seemed to say was that there is a line somewhere that you can't go past toward restricting abortion and still retain the support of a majority of people. What what was clear from the vote, when you strip away all the analysis, and there was a lot of it, was that the voters who were voting, they did not want to ban. Mm-hmm. That was what they feared would happen when we talked to them at the polls and before the polls. The people who were voting, no, feared that Kansas would eventually get to a ban or quickly in in not just in the state's urban and suburban cores, but in what are traditionally very red counties. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Jackson County and Jefferson County, neighboring in the Topeka area, Franklin County, where Ottawa is. I mean, Greenwood County, I believe, <laughs> voted no. And I mean, yeah, some people probably in this state, most of Johnson County probably couldn't find Greenwood County on a map. Well, uh, and 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 the the point is. We we got a sense that that voters in Kansas do not want a ban on abortion or most abortions, but what the vote couldn't tell anybody was where people wanted the line drawn. Which I think you know our next podcast episode will focus on what's to come in twenty twenty three. I think that'll definitely be yeah a, a big question heading into the the new year. Um, Jason, I'm curious because the so. Spoiler alert, number two and three on the list uh, were, were both November 8th. Uh, I'm curious how you think, though, that the how the August 2nd vote, because there was so much pontificating after that as to what that would mean for the midterms, both nationally, but really in Kansas. What, you know, what were some of the, how do you think some of our thoughts at the time played out ultimately uh, ahead of ahead of November 8th? Well, I mean, the, the big question was if the voters who turned out massively relatively for a for a primary in August, whether they would turn out again in November and if they would vote the same way they voted then. And I, I have not looked at analysis to see how much that played out, uh, but we had during the campaign season, a governor's race where neither candidate really wanted to talk about abortion. Uh, 
And then in the attorney general's race, both candidates wanted to talk about abortion. Just in very different ways. <laughs> yes. And, and so it, if November 8th had gone differently, we would have all been sitting around asking, why did Laura Kelly not talk about abortion more? Uh, and then we look at the attorney general's race where Chris Mann did talk about abortion and Chris Kobach still won. Well, and, and Jason, perfect segue. Wow. Really? Mm. Chef kiss. You can't see me making chef kiss motions cause it's a podcast, but I am, uh, number two and three are those, those two races that, that Jason just mentioned. I think we both, we had, we all had them maybe in slightly different placements as far as ranking newsiness, but, uh, Governor Laura Kelly's victory in the governor's race, narrow victory over yes. Republican Attorney General Derek Schmidt and Chris Kobach. He's back uh, and will be sworn in on January 9th as the next attorney general. Um, I, which one do we want to start with first? Because I think there's a lot to, to dig into on both of these. Well, um, I, let's start with Kelly's victory since that you all put that number two. I put it number three behind Kobach. Um, but. Um, her victory was interesting because, first of all, it was narrow. It came in a year where Republicans, certainly at the beginning of the year and up until Dobbs, and then after sometime in October, September, October, you had all this rhetoric about the wet red wave coming. The red wave was going to sweep through. Uh, it didn't um, nationally. Um, Republicans did... It's always hard, you know, Republicans maintained supermajorities in, in both chambers in the House, which was up. Um, they won the statewide races except for governor. Um, and the congressional races except for... Except Sharice for Sharice Davids. But if you're a Republican in Kansas and you don't have the governor's office, that sometimes can feel like a loss. Because uh, that, in in terms of the executive branch, that's really the big Kahuna office to have, and and so you know Kelly managed to squeak it out, and she actually, for the most part, squeaked it out on her own terms in terms of the campaign. I mean, she ran this campaign that was focused on, uh, you know, look at all these economic development things. You know, look at how much better the state's finances are, that kind of message. Food sales tax. Food sales tax. Yeah, school funding. All those kind of without really, I mean, if she were asked about abortion, she'd answer it. Um, But but her answer was not always uh, as quotable as what we would have liked in the media. It was a very like, well, I've had a record for the past decade on this and my stance hasn't changed. Well, and and that's in sharp contrast to Sharice Davids, who was really before the August vote in a way very public, very out front. And then after the vote, she really made it her campaign really emphasized that in the Democrats in the race against Amanda Adkins, who had supported it. So there was a nice contrast there. Um, and then, you know, Republicans are still debating what happened to Derek Schmidt's campaign, why it fell 
uh, just a little bit short in what was supposed to be a really good year for Republicans. I mean, the, the biggest blame, the biggest finger pointing from Republicans goes to state senator, uh, independent conservative Dennis Pyle from Hiawatha. Uh, Though, in the end, his vote total was not enough to cover the margin of difference. Uh, but the third-party candidate, the uh, Libertarian, if you combined his and Dennis Pyle's vote totals together, it would cover the margin. Well, and there's some argument that, yes, uh, that Pyle kept some conservatives away from the polls. And, and you know, there's an argument out there that for that uh, Schmidt— had to cover his right flank and that took time away from a and energy away from appealing to moderates resources you know i've heard some some uh commentary that well this is like if you're in uh a football game or a basketball game and allows you get what you think is a lousy call from the official and that costs you the game the argument is you still you were still doing stuff that got you in the position where uh, one bad call or one call that went against you cost you the game. And I have heard that analysis. Um, you know, the, the, Schmidt, the Schmidt campaign, um, you know, they were doing, they did a lot of work, a lot of focus on transgender athletes and preventing them from being in girls and women's sports. They pivoted to crime. Um, and, you know, the, the slogan seemed to be, we can do better. But there was some question amongst Republicans whether that campaign could have done better. Well, and it's inter an interesting contrast to Secretary, for, well, I guess eight, we can call him AG-elect Kobach. Yeah, Attorney General-elect Chris Kobach. Who, by his own admission, said this was the best run campaign he had ever been a part of. Now, I think... There's so much opinion baked in on Kobach that was always going to be a close race, and it was. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, in, uh, John, I think you said the reason you had this number two is it raises a lot of interesting questions about um, Kobach's future. It does. You know, is this going to be how he runs the attorney general's office, or are there going to be maneuvers like when he was secretary of state that put him on the national radar perhaps in less flattering <laughs> brushstrokes if, if yeah uh, if I, I mean sense. what what is interesting here is that you know during the campaign you had all this talk about a new Kobach a more disciplined Kobach somebody who was delegating more somebody who was uh, you know, we were all struck by the contrast between the attorney general's race, which generally gets less attention than the governor's race and the governor's race. In that 2018 governor's race, you had Kobach's critics out early, and they were, you know, focusing on what he'd been saying and doing on immigration and, and all of that. And that seemed like a lot less other than Chris Mann pointing it out. And, and we've seen some uh, post-election polling from the electorate and what it seems to suggest is that after the whole campaign a good chunk of the voters maybe even around half just didn't have a clear picture of who Chris Mann was when they went to the polls and and you know it, it the political baggage that Kobach had from being a lightning rod on immigration, on voting rights, on, on some other things, 
uh, was almost enough, but not enough. And so now he's back in office. He, you know, he is positioned if he wants to, to run for higher office again. And it also raises a question about what I would probably call the Trumpiest wing of the Republican Party. I mean, he was a very early supporter of Donald Trump. Um, the first act- actually the first prominent Kansas Republican elected official to endorse Trump. And he's not afraid to highlight that fact. Right. And I mean, he he was supporting Trump before it was, you know, it was cool in the Republican Party. And, um, and so, you know, that, that suggests that that wing of the Republican Party is not, not going to fade away, whether those Republicans find a new candidate or not. Um, th- that that wing of the party is going to have to be reckoned with um, and is still going to have some influence in, in Kansas politics. We'll see. I mean, you know, a fortnight is an eternity in politics. But um, so that was interesting. The other, the other interesting question out there is just how does Chris Kobach run the attorney general's office? He's made some pledges on the campaign trail to sue the Biden administration a lot that has the potential to bring Kansas a lot of national attention. There are already at least two subjects where he's either promised to look at a lawsuit or uh, file one. The one where he's going to, where he's promised to file one is the prairie chicken listing the endangered species. My favorite story, the prairie chicken story. And then the other one is the waters of the U S he's promised to, you know, take a look at the situation and consider legal action as attorney general. So there's that. But then he also hired Tony Mativi of primary rival to be uh, KBI director. The new solicitor general is a former court of appeals judge and legislator, Tony Powell, also a district judge in Sedgwick County. So that's more of an establishment-y pick. Um to to help navigate these things plus kobach is just interesting but you know there were questions in the past of how he ran his administration sure i i went at the secretary of state's office when he uh got in front of the judge he got sanctioned uh when he was chair of the kansas republican party they had a lot of financial concerns uh, he was involved with We Build the Wall, the uh, group trying to build a wall at the southern border, but now has several top people uh, facing federal criminal charges. And oh, and fa- state charges as well. And in fact, he earned a, a, agreed to an FEC fine um, earlier this year. It was made public last week uh, for accepting an in-kind contribution from We Build the Wall during his 2020 U.S. Senate run. Yeah, that was, that was a complaint over... Uh, very early in his AG campaign, he rented an email list from We Build the Wall. Paid uh, U.S. Think, Senate campaign. U.S. Senate. Correct. You're right. You're right. U.S. Senate campaign. I stand corrected. It was 2019. Um, and he rented an email list from We Build the Wall, paid, I think, $2,000 for it. And then there was a dispute about whether that a complaint that that wasn't fair market value and and so that you're right that the announcement of the settlement and the fine and all that just got uh announced last week so and for his part 
outgoing Attorney General Derek Schmidt, I asked him if he is confident in Chris Kobach's abilities to uh, maintain the current level of uh, production and whatnot at the Attorney General's office, and uh, Derek Schmidt said sure, and you can read more about that on cjonline.com. <laughs> Good plug. That was, that was smooth. Um. Do we want to kind of go rapid? Well, I mean, maybe not rapid fire. We don't have to move that quickly, but we can kind of move through uh, some of the ones that we kind of each individually put on our on our list. Um, John, you and I both said redistricting, which feels like it is more than a year ago. Impossible kind of to believe it is the same year as all this other stuff. Um, um, yeah, well, redistricting was significant in several ways. Um besides being a really interesting debate and process. Um, it was important in that it probably, if the legislature has Republican supermajorities going forward, the the maps that were approved this year will probably have a part in it. Uh, clearly, the Republicans, Ty Masterson, the Senate president, said they when they redrew the lines for the State Board of Education, they hope to have more conservatives. They now have a couple more conservatives. Um, it, you know, if they're, if they, they didn't change the congressional delegation, uh, despite some changes in the lines for Sharice David's district in the Kansas city area, but the really interesting, and then we had that very interesting, uh, thing in, in February and March where the veto Kelly vetoed the maps, the, and, uh, uh, the Republicans tried to override them in the Senate had failed on the first attempt and it succeeded on the second attempt. And there's a lot of discussion about what happened between those things. People lost committee assignments. It was all a deal, but probably the more significant thing out of all of that was the Kansas Supreme court ruling in the congressional redistricting case, basically a four to three ruling that the state constitution does not, uh, bar uh, political gerrymandering and, you know, kind of out of a sense of how would we measure that and how would we know where the line was? That was the majority's opinion sense of it. There's no way to draw a line between what's acceptable and not. And so it's a political question. And that that will have implications going forward because essentially uh, Republican majorities will have a freer hand in how they draw the lines if they retain their majorities. And there was a lot of uh, discussion over the portion of Kansas City that was split out from yeah. the third into the second, and then the putting of Lawrence yeah. into the big first. And I I think long-term, KU might feel an impact. I mean, or at least that's what certain advocates said would be the case of having the big first representative represent both K-State and KU, uh, it might make it more difficult for KU officials to go to their congressmen to try to get what they want or need out of D.C. Well, and and very clearly, the first district congressman, Tracy Mann, um, is pretty 
out of step with where Douglas, where, where the city of Lawrence is in his district. And I don't, I don't think I, I, I'm I, not sure this, the city of Lawrence is not where clearly not where a lot of the district is, but what I didn't see a lot of evidence that either he or even really the Democrat, uh, Jimmy Beard, a garden city educator ever campaigned at all in, in Douglas County, um, which may signal their, influence or lack thereof in, in that district going yeah. forward. Um, I mean, if Jimmy Beard wanted to drive from Garden City to Lawrence, he'd be driving likely <laughs> through two other congressional districts yeah. to get there. It's true. Well, yeah, and and eight hours, right? Is it eight hours to Garden City? Round trip. Right. Maybe round trip, yeah. It's a it's a haul. That would be a, yeah. I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it... it I mean, particularly given that Kansas, unlike Missouri and some other states, lacks any sort of ballot initiative mechanism to get a quote-unquote nonpartisan redistricting mechanism implemented, whether that's the Iowa model or or, or even just else. even just a constitutional amendment right, to, to declare partisan gerrymandering unacceptable, which seems like it might be all it would take for this Kansas Supreme Court to rethink their their ruling. Um, this seems to really bake in. Um, a a major amount of power for the legislature going forward uh, on this topic. Uh, yeah, we'll be interested to see in you know in ten years from now what what how, how things shake out. Jason, you and I had one that uh, there was some overlap. I guess we kind of have like you know like the the concentric circles and there's some overlap. Venn diagram. Venn diagram. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's sports betting, which is a long time uh, f- battle that seemingly reached its end this year, although there are still people I think that maybe have reservations. But um, you can now bet on uh, your K State Wildcats in Kansas, although I hope you didn't. On, uh, well, I, it depends well, on whether he took the point spread. Yeah, that's I, true. <laughs> I, I did not bet because I do not want to bet. Uh, but if I had bet, I would have bet at the beginning of the year for K-State to, I would have taken the over on the win total, which K-State did beat. And I think I would have taken the over on the KU win total, which they also beat. I would think by it's some a wide margin. It, yeah. yes. I mean, it, they had beat the over by the third game of the season. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the sports betting had long been uh, something that, Several lawmakers, even more lobbyists, wanted to get through. An armada of lobbyists. And uh, while there may have been, and surely was, plenty of work done last January through last April uh, and before the start of last session, uh, the 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 rubber hit really hit the road. I uh, can't really think of a good sports metaphor here. Uh I, I guess that works works for NASCAR. Yeah, uh, the, the rubber vroom, hit vroom. the road on a. Can you bet uh, on NASCAR? I bet you can bet on. Oh NASCAR. yeah, well because the Hollywood Casino is at the Kansas Speedway. That's so. right. It's a, on a turn actually. Uh, but it was a conference committee re- week, right? And the last day or so of it. Yeah, that was a busy. That was a busy day. I think I lived and died several deaths on that day. Well, uh, was it conference committee week or was it? Yes, because they, if I'm remembering correctly, the House passed it. Uh, there was the inclusion of the controversial, and the governor has actually come out saying she wants this to be taken out of the bill, but a fund that would um, uh, basically be the, the, the profits from the, the state's share of the 
the profits from Those sports vast betting. vast profits. <laughs> well, then that's a whole other point. But yes. we'll go to trying to lure uh, the Chiefs or the Royals or build a professional stadium in, in Kansas. Um, the, it almost didn't pass the Kansas House because of that. Many Democrats voted no. The Senate adjourned without taking it up. They came back uh, later and did pass it. Um, and uh, the rest is history. Now, and, and John kind of alluded to this. I think many people have been disappointed that the revenues have not been all that great uh, for the state. I, I would counter that by saying, I think anyone who paid close attention to where uh, fiscal notes were at over the course of this process would, would tell you that there was never an expectation that this was going to make the state uh, a lot of money. But there are a lot of people, um, particularly in the Kansas City area, uh, and the state is kind of able to pull some of them across the Missouri line, that, that just really want to bet on sports. And um, well, constituent and- pressure was high, I think, for some legislators to, to endorse moving forward with this, um, even if the end product is flawed. Well, and and then, of course, what you had was a series of stories about sports betting by the New York Times where they uh, really dissected. um, Not just in Kansas. Not just in in Kansas, but all over in many other states. And um, they painted a, a picture in Kansas of pretty strong influence of some of the 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 big companies getting what they wanted and what they wanted was a lower tax rate in kansas to make it more profitable for them of course and uh tax exemptions on if you have seen an ad of place like a risk-free bet or your first thousand dollars of bets you can get back if you lose those are all uh tax benefits for those companies yeah, they don't have to. We can't. The state doesn't get a cut uh, of that, at least. Yeah, not yet. Um, and then there are all other conversations about problem gambling, and and uh, this bill kind of finally addressed a long-standing loophole where money's supposed to go to the problem gambling fund and not actually go to the problem gambling fund, and but um, you know, kind of at what cost, and you know, a lot. You know, thinking about twenty twenty three, a lot there to continue. I think to to seek our sink our teeth into uh speaking of sinking our teeth into things uh if you're buying food at the grocery store now if you if you went i I, actually i went to dylan's today and uh my sales tax was slightly less uh jason and that was on your list right it it was did they have it broken out for different items of different tax rates you know i didn't even think about it i should i I didn't get a receipt today and i i should have made sure to get one as like a little memento of First, first uh, now I'm going to have to go to Dylan's and buy like health and beauty products I mean, and, uh, <laughs> and food and see what happens. I was already planning to go grocery shopping when I go home because uh, I have not, <laughs> there's no good food in the fridge after being gone for a week and a half. Uh, but yes, the food sales tax cut was f- the first installment of it happened on January 1st. Uh, the long debated, long talked about food sales tax cut. Uh, uh, Laura Kelly and Derek Schmidt were both campaigning on or backed last year. Uh, Laura Kelly much more so uh, with campaigning on it. Uh, the state has a 6.5% sales tax uh, on all products for food advocates 
wanted to cut it to 0%. Uh, the bill that finally passed uh, at the end of the session, or toward the end, uh, takes the 6.5% rate to 4% starting January 1st, and then to 2% of January 1st the following year, then 0% the year after that. Uh, you might have to be careful on what you buy, because if you go to a, get a rotisserie chicken, that will still have the 6.5% state sales tax, plus any local sales taxes. Uh, so you, you might have a cart full of food that has certain items taxed at a different rate when you go to the grocery store. Because, you know, this is a rather Byzantine... <laughs> system and, and interestingly the governor as we mentioned earlier campaigned uh bigly on the on the trail on being proud of ushering in some sort of food sales tax elimination but also kind of in a in a interesting cognitive dissonance is going to push really hard to speed up the sales tax elimination right yeah she wants uh to take it to zero percent starting april 1st uh, because of tax law implications, you can only do it at the start of a calendar quarter. Uh, so that's why April 1st would be the soonest that it could be done. Republicans, or at least top Republicans on tax policy, have no interest whatsoever in doing that. Uh, they liken an immediate food sales tax cut to the Brownback income tax cuts. Because uh, irony is dead. <laughs> um, and Please to, direct all letter angry letters to uh, John Hanna uh, of the I Associated mean, it, Press. It is interesting to hear. It is, I mean, uh, to be fair to them, um, some of them lived through the experience of uh, the Brownback tax cuts and what people concluded the lessons were, and, for, and they don't want to do it again. For but, her case, Senator Karen Tyson, a uh, Republican from Parker, has argued that the problem with the Brownback income tax cuts was that they were all done at once and that they should have been spaced out over time, like how this food sales tax cut is being implemented. Well, that's, that, is, that is one argument. The, the other argument is that um, the mix of all that stuff uh, in the Brownback tax cutting experiment all at once made it very hard to project revenues. And when they tried it, it didn't work so well. They kept falling short of the, the revenue collections kept falling short of estimates. There was an argument that a particular piece, uh, the exemption for business owners when they pass through income from their LLCs to their, uh, to their personal income taxes, that that was very hard to measure. And, and the tax conservative tax foundation said it encouraged tax avoidance. There's, there's still a debate about that. Um, so there were some, there were arguably some elements of the Brownback tax cuts that made what they did to revenues more volatile than a simple food sales tax cut. On the other hand, if you'd lived through that experience, would you want to do it again? What would you want to take the chance that it could happen again? If, and if, and look, revenues. Uh, oh, and this is this is simply a fact from having covered this since the Jurassic Age. Revenue <laughs> revenue growth goes in cycles. It goes up. You get big ending balances, and then it goes down. And 
you have budget issues. Which explains the push to put money in the rainy day fund, to pay which off Kansas bonds, didn't have to, exactly. pay down debt, pay off capers. And it's, it's very hard, if you're an elected official, it's very, very hard to look at the end, size of the ending balances plus the billion dollars in the rainy day fund that Kansas has, two plus, $2.3 billion, this, these high balances and not say why are we taking this money out of people's pockets to sock it away in the state treasury why you know or gee what could we do with that money to improve x it's it's you know your thinking is much more short term than well if we built up this money for 40 years you know we'd we'd never have a budget deficit ever again or something like that if tax cuts interest you, we will likely, very likely, have a story later this week or early next week on potential tax cuts that will debated, be debated this coming year. Uh, the, the food sales tax cut, while it was a major storyline of the last year, uh, it is not going away as a political issue and not going away entirely on your uh, receipt. And when Jason says, we will have a story, he means he will have a story. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm leaving that to you, but John, uh, you, you had a very interesting topic for your, uh, last slot. Uh, tell us a bit more about it. I, I generally, it was under the rubric of voting rights, maybe more, uh, more, uh, accurately elections, election administration. We had a discussion in the legislature, very interesting on, uh, things like getting rid of the three-day grace period for mail ballots to arrive after the election, uh, restricting or even getting rid of ballot drop boxes. Um, and, of course, in the Secretary of State's race, Scott Schwab, who, uh, for a Republican, uh, has been very out front in defending the integrity of elections uh, against Mike Brown, who uh, has... Uh, advocated these these election conspiracies that a lot of very hardcore Trump supporters have pushed, um, you know, as former President Trump makes these false claims that the election was stolen from him in 2020. Um, and so that issue is out there. It will probably be back this coming year. Um, and it just you're going to have this continuing going forward debate about the administration of elections and stuff like that. And there was litigation and there was a recount on the anti-abortion amendment that showed that um, there's still this strain of thinking in the Republican party, particularly on the right. And like you said, not going to go away anytime soon. I think we're anticipating, you know, looking at the composition of the House Elections Committee, which takes up election bills, and perhaps that goes without saying, um, a much more conservative membership from Republicans, more people who have raised these kinds of questions about election integrity. Um, and I think, you know, it'll present some interesting dynamics because some of these things thinking specifically about ballot drop boxes, rural legislators, Republicans from rural areas, are not keen on getting rid of those because those are the people who most take advantage of it. Um, and you get some really interesting debates uh, and um, some really interesting arguments uh, from people you might not expect to, to, to keep ballot drop boxes or the, or the grace oh, period and, and, or what have you. 
And then you have questions about will the legislature try to follow up, for example, on this law that limits third parties to collecting and delivering more than 10 ballots at a time? Um, you know, that that law is linked to the ballot drop boxes. Chris Kobach, the attorney general elect, argued that it's hard to enforce that law with ballot drop boxes. Um you know, voting rights advocates would say, well, that law is completely unnecessary. It doesn't really do anything except hinder uh, poor people and people of color and others, elderly folks, from getting their ballots delivered. So, I mean, it's an on ongoing debate. And, you know, the interesting, one of the interesting things about American elections that distinguish them from elections around the world is first that elected partisan elected officials um, handle the count. Uh, that's not the case in a lot of countries. And then a lot of democracies around the world make it easier to, to be registered to vote. Um, you know, in, in some cases, you just are. I mean, I think Australia, you even pay a small fine if you don't. Yeah, there's some. Brazil, you also, I believe, are required to vote, uh, though you don't actually have to vote for someone. Even expatriates have to go out and vote because that was an issue during the um, that election earlier this, well, I guess in 2022. Um, anyway, I guess tune back later for my uh, other podcast on I comparative right to... government and politics globally but anyway. well and, and i guess you know <laughs> argue... it'll count for a 600 level college course right? <laughs> yeah right yeah that's... i mean arguably you could argue that uh, under our notions of individual freedoms in the united states um that the right to vote is also the right not to vote and the right to ignore politics completely if you want to Though we hope you don't. And no, in we fact, don't want you to ignore politics. Moreover, we hope that in the new year you will consider uh, ringing in the new year with a subscription to the Topeka Capital Journal. Um, I'm biased, but I think we do pretty good work, Jason. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And uh, we like to get paid. So uh, <laughs> if you yeah. would... If you want the podcast to continue, <laughs> we need to still have salaries. <laughs> We're not like NPR either. We can't offer you a tote bag for getting a subscription, much as we would like to. But, or a coffee mug. Or sadly. a coffee mug. But if if you consider our coverage and if you consider the podcast uh, worth it to you, we we would love it if you would. Uh, we would be grateful if you consider uh, uh, subscribing. And and the Christmas season may be over, but it's not too late to get a subscription as a gift for a family member or friend. And then have that family member or friend be like, "Really, you didn't give me a better gift." Uh, but you got them the gift of truth, and really, what could be better than that? Um, you can <laughs> anyway. You can find all our stories at cjonline.com uh, or on Twitter at cjonline. We're on Facebook and Instagram as well. And uh, Jason, where can they find you personally? I am at Jason underscore Tid. And I am at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L. And Jason is right. We're going to have some really great content ahead of the legislative session uh, you won't want to miss. So go follow us. And John, I'm sure you will also have some content folks won't want to miss. Yes, yes. And I'm at AP, uh, Twitter. I'm at APJD Hannah. And then obviously uh, www.apnews.com backslash the hand. We, you know, there was a time when we didn't mention the hand motion, but we do now. Kansas with a capital K. 
And if you want to listen to back episodes of the podcast, and you do well because you know your New Year's resolution is probably to go to the gym more, and uh, we can help you with that. We're excellent we're, gym stuff. Yeah, we are. We're we're good compatriots for the gym. Uh, you can go to Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Omni, or um, I will try. My New Year's resolution will be to try and be better about posting our new podcast to CJOnline.com. Uh, you can check us out there as well. Uh, Jason, Andrew, John, Andrew, Jason, uh, lovely to ring in the new year with you guys. Uh, I missed this, missed you both. And, uh, it's, it's fun to have 2023 off with, uh, with the good podcast for folks to listen to. Will we spare our listeners from an old Lang Syne? <laughs> I, I think you know you were wanting to sing when we were doing the mic check. Should acquaintance? There he goes, be folks. Everyone, everyone. No, no, no. I told you. <laughs> I told you about. I, I told you how I always get verklempt with this song because it's at the end of uh, "It's a Wonderful Life," and when my daughter was nine years old. She was in a, a stage production, staged radio version of It's a Wonderful Life. And one of the two parts she played was Zuzu, the youngest of George and Mary Bailey's children. And, of course, she gets to say that very famous line at the end. Teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. And I can't watch the movie now because... Uh, when it gets to that scene, I hear my nine-year-old daughter's voice instead of the voice of the actress who actually says it. So there you go. That's a bad thing. A very heartwarming story to, to end the podcast with. Well, I mentioned my daughter so that she'll also listen to the <laughs> podcast. Ah, uh, One more listener. A long One more listener. Yeah. Well, uh, my old acquaintances, John and Jason, looking forward to another good year. Uh, hope you all are, are had a great holidays as well, and we will see you next week to preview 2023. See you then. gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left listen to where secrets go to die the disappearance of Derek Hennigan from the Detroit Free Press a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula available on Apple Spotify Freep.com or wherever you get your podcasts